0: Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teachers. Be with you in the house tonight. My name's Mike, one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't met you, a particularly huge welcome, Online Church. Where are we? Over here. Great to be with you today. Uh, It is just a privilege and a blessing to be uh, with you. And I pray that tonight you are touched by the Holy Spirit, that you have a moment. Actually, I need to take my hat off, don't I? Because I'm not wearing it for a Green Team fundraiser, so it's too dark. (sighs) But my hair's a bit messy. But it's all right. It's fine. You're fine, Online Church. The people in the room can see it in all its... Glory. But uh a uh thank you very much. Thank you. It's gonna be a great night tonight. I, I want to highlight a couple of things uh before I really get into the word tonight. The first is that uh today is the last day of applications for our positions that we got going in encounter, which we're very excited about. We've had numerous applicants already, really, really excited. But I just want to remind people that if they were planning online or otherwise in putting an application tonight is the deadline, because obeying a deadline is part of applying for a job. Anyway, just a little tip out there for all the job applicants, uh, whether for here or otherwise. The other thing I want to highlight is that tomorrow, this is the 25th birthday of Jacob Blackwell, our digital coordinator and all-round superstar. You're not going to believe this. He's behind a desk at the moment. Uh, and uh, we absolutely... He is, isn't he? I thought, there, there he is. That's what I thought. Yeah. Lots of masks and bright lights. Uh, we just want to say we love you, Jacob, and we honor you and the leadership that you bring to this space and the pioneering spirit. And he's one of the most faithful leaders you will ever meet. Faithful friend, man of God. And so we just honor you, Jacob. We just celebrate Jacob with a big milestone. I remember turning 25. I do. Don't laugh. And I remember thinking, I'm a proper adult now. Look at me. And I was right. Anyway. Now we get. Now that I've offended half the people in the room, let's uh, let's kick on. It's going to be a good night in the house of God. We're in November. We're being able to press into the things of love and relationships and the Holy Spirit. And God has a word for you, and He's got a word for you. I know because that's what He does. God is faithful like that. He will take whatever words I'm trying to bring and speak to you if you are open to whatever he's got to say. So why don't you pray with me tonight, and then we're going to let God speak to you. Amen? Come on. Ah, We need to be a bit better than that, 4 p.m. Amen? Amen? That's what I'm talking about. All right. Holy Spirit, come. That is our desperate prayer. Would you come in your fullness? Come with the presence of God and meet us here tonight. Meet us in power, meet us in presence, meet us in authority. But above all else, would you speak? We love your voice and we need your guidance, God, above all else. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 All right. 1 John chapter 4. We are going to jump straight into the word tonight. Verse 7. And let's read about love. Dear friends. Let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Because God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love love. Because he first loved us. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God is good. I was really hopeful somebody would say that. So God bless you, whoever that was. All the time. I thought that's Jazzy's voice, of course. So good. Now, last week in November, Kim Smith spoke an amazing word about singleness in the AM. And in the PM, Jeremy came along and tore it up, preaching about dating. Powerful messages both. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, they're really, they're really great. Like Get on the podcast, have a listen, jump on YouTube. And I think they're both up there because Kim's was on video as well, which is great. Uh, but this week, I want to move away from practical applications and go sort of more back up and into what it means for us to have a relationship with God. Perhaps more specifically, what it means for God to love us and how he has expressed that. It's a truly, truly powerful thing because the purpose of participating in worship and hearing sermons is actually ultimately to understand who God is and understand our relationship with him. Because we can't understand and operate in our relationships unless we do that. Relationships guided by God don't make sense until we examine our relationship with God. Amen. We've got to understand how God is guiding us in order to apply that to the relationships around us. So today, we look at the most extraordinary kind of love, which is God's love for us through the lens of slavery, sacrifice, and salvation. So just let those three words sink into you, slavery, sacrifice, salvation. We're going to touch on those concepts because... You can talk about the love of God in a million different ways. You can take it from any passage in scripture, old and new, and see the love of God and the narrative of God drawing all the threads together. But in this passage from 1 John 4, we really get to deep dive and all of those three elements are in it. Sacrifice, slavery, salvation. Let's start with sacrifice. Sacrifice is what love requires of us. Okay? Okay. What love requires of us. Now, many of you will know that I'm a massive, massive movie nerd. I love films. Tomorrow, Jenny and I are going to go see the new Bond movie. I can't wait because I really only have two speeds with films. Either pretentious Oscar movies that no one's heard the name of because they were filmed in Latvia or something. And like The Fast and the Furious. Those are kind of my only speeds as a movie watcher. So, yeah, here we are. So I can't wait to go to the new Bond movie tomorrow. But one thing that I've been thinking about lately is what is the, my favourite movie of all time? Because it's the sort of thing that a movie nerd gets asked a lot and it's the sort of thing I think about too much and people just like, just say The Shawshank Redemption, all right? Like We all, we all know what a 40-year-old male's favourite movie is. But, and The Shawshank Redemption is up there. But one of them that I don't talk about often is The Princess Bride. <laughs> Such a good film. Can I honestly, hands up if you haven't seen The Princess Bride. It is so, so wonderful. And here's the thing about The Princess Bride. It is for everybody. It is one of the rare movies that is actually for everybody. Because it is a perfect love story and it's also a perfect parody of a love story. Both of them together at the same time. So if you're a comedy fan, this is for you. If you're a romance fan, this is for you. And if you don't have laughter or romance in you, God help you. What is going on? But the Princess Bride should help both of those. So Wesley, the movie's hero, he goes on a journey to reclaim his true love, Princess Buttercup, which requires a series of heroic battles and sacrifices which ends when he is killed, mostly dead. I'll just leave that there. You can can work out what happens after that. Now, apart from the comedy, what stands out is Wesley's unstoppable quest to get Princess Buttercup, to save and be with Buttercup. There is nothing Wesley will not do for love no cliffs too insane, no swamps too fiery, no rodents too unusually sized. Wesley will make any sacrifice for love. And the point of this is that Hollywood, like us, has always understood that there is an element of sacrifice in any true love story, right? There's got to be sacrifice. Stories of love move our hearts. Stories of loving sacrifice stop us in our tracks and get us leaning in and forking out $20 without complaining about it afterwards. That's what Hollywood knows, and it makes sense that they would know it because God has used sacrifice to display his love for us. And all the stories that we tell are echoes of the one great story, the love of God for us. And so the element of sacrifice is really, really important. Now, if we look at something like 1 John 4, we can get incredibly muddled up, or at least I do, because I read it, I'm like, wow, all I'm hearing is remain in love and God over and over and over again until my head starts spinning. In fact, the word love is in there 22 times in the passage we just read. God is in there 18 times and another 6 if you include other trinity references. So, it is very heavy on those words. And so we need to start unpacking what this means. The likely author of one John was John, the son of Zebedee, Jesus' disciples. And one of the reasons we can feel fairly confident that he is the author of the letter is because the Gospel of John, which is also attributed to him, is filled with the same language and the same style of writing. Language filled with love. All of the Gospel writers, it's like they're taking a picture of Jesus from these four different angles. And John, more than anyone, takes a picture from Jesus' feet as a loving servant going, tell me more. He loves Jesus so much so that he refers to himself in the the Gospels, not as John, but as the disciple Jesus loved. That's his sense of identity. The other Gospel writers were like, we're just going to call you John because Jesus loved us too. Yeah, anyway. Matthew's like, no, 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 no. we'll just call you by your name. (laughs) And so what we hear in John's Gospels is a particular vision of Jesus where he's even more loving. His miracles are loving. His teaching is loving. He's washing the disciples' feet and saying things like, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. That's how you're going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying to the first Christians, other people will know you're Christians if you love other Christians well. Like, so let's get that right first. That's just my first hot take of the evening. How do we do that? Just as I've loved you, Jesus said. That's how to love people. Like Jesus loved us. And in John chapter 15, he explains what he means by this. As the Father has loved me, in verse 9, I've also loved you. So remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Then he starts giving his new command. Verse 12, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Obviously a prescient thing for Jesus to say, because he would go and do it. So he's, to summarize, he says this, remain in my love. Love one another as I have loved you. How do you do that? You do it by laying down your life for each other. Jesus, before he went to the cross, recognized that true love has a cost. There is always a cost. That's how you know it is love. Now, if you think about it, I I did this this morning. I want to give the analogy of parents. You know parents love you, not because they tell you they love you, because that's a bit surface level. You can only say you love somebody for so long before they go, can you show me some proof of this love? And so the parents show you proof, how they feed you, they shelter you, they care for you, they guide you. And not only do they do that, they'll probably go, not only am I sheltering you, let me create this space in a way that is unique to you. Let me feed you foods that you actually like. I'm not just giving you subsistence. It's not gruel. You can come back for more. It's okay. No, one giggle for an Oliver joke. That's fine. I mean, it, it is from the 60s. It's okay. I'm going to update my movie Rolodex for y'all. I didn't do a Rain Man joke on purpose because I thought, Rain Man, it's not going to land. Three people will know where that is. And those three just laughed. So that's fine. The point is that parents go above and beyond in action and that's how you know they love you. The words begin it, but the actions continue it and prove it. When they are taxiing you around to your parties and events and your sporting um, and your sporting practices and things like that, it's not because they love sports practice. It's because they love you. My dad, I really like barely gave this any thought as a 14-year-old, but I have rowing training at, f- at like 5 in the morning on the River Torrens, and he was just like, yeah, let's go. Never said a word about it. I was like, yeah, why wouldn't he? He's my taxi. That's what he does. It's only as you grow older and you have to do it yourself, you're like, my goodness, how early he got up to take me there. He should have just not let me do it. And so Jesus said that the way to follow him is to love and love one another and demonstrate that by sacrificing, by laying down our lives for one another. You don't know how to love if you don't know how to sacrifice. That's the challenge of Jesus. And so we need to understand that because at the centre of this passage of 1 John 4 and at the centre of the entire Bible is Jesus himself. And Jesus is God's expression of loving sacrifice for you. That's what he came to do. If we can't understand this concept of the sacrifice of Jesus, then we're going to struggle to understand the love of God. And we're going to struggle to live out of that. And God wants to gift us with this understanding church. He wants us to understand sacrifice, not so that we're trapped, but so that we're freed. I'm going to get to that in a second. To understand God's nature, you can go to just three words in the center of the passage we read today. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Three words, that's all it takes. John then continues on it. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Yeah. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I go, good news. You don't have to work your way into God's love and you don't have to love God enough for him to go, wow, I finally feel like, yeah, you're getting it now. Yeah, I feel I feel affirmed now. God is not sitting up there offended at your lack of love. He is aware that his love is going to out, outmatch yours like an ocean outmatches a drop of water. You don't have to do that. But God sends his love first as a gift. And he sends it in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So God's love is revealed in the sending of Jesus to the world. And God's love consists of this, that Jesus was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You with me so far? Good. Thanks, Jeremy. Is everyone else with me? All right. So Jesus was intentionally sent as a sacrifice by a loving God. But why? You ever asked yourself that question? What did Jesus need to save us from? Well, John's talking about love a lot. And every one of us in this room, everyone watching online, we've all heard about love. We have some vague idea of love. Yet John still feels the need to spell it out. And why is that? It's because we suck. It's because we don't really know how to love very well. We have these vague ideas. We're like romance is kind of love and sex is sort of love related and affection is love related and yeah, friendshipy stuff. That's all it's all kind of love, isn't it? And then we say things like I love my iPhone. I love this app. I love the new burger joint I'm going to. You know, we we would just use that word anywhere on anything. And so it dilutes the meaning of love. We don't do love properly. We offer these shallow representations of love and then wonder why they fall short. What we actually do is get caught in slavery. One of our main problems, church, as followers of Jesus in the West, this is really, really important. I highlighted in blue on my iPad so that when I read it, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is the most important thing. So this is highlighted in blue important. One of our main problems in your life, in mine, is we allow lesser loves to capture our hearts. Things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but we put them above God in our lives and let them rule our lives. So they challenge the relational position of God and the authority of God. The author David Bennett describes this as a war of loves. Because God is the rightful ruler of our hearts, anything that comes against him will clash with it. John Mark Comer calls it having disordered desires. And these disordered desires form us and shape us in unloving and destructive ways. In fact, they enslave us. That's the slavery portion. Slavery is what love takes us from. But as we find ourselves in slavery to things that are not God, we find ourselves in slavery to sin. And you might be sitting here going, okay, yep, Mike, fully aware I'm not perfect. Wouldn't have called myself a slave though. Here I am living in Australia, one of the freest nations in the world, right? I don't feel enslaved. It's a dramatic term. Yes, it is, but I'm a dramatic guy. And more than that, it's the language of Scripture. In Galatians, this is what we hear, that you have been enslaved to the law. And in Galatians 5.1, Paul says, well, it is for freedom then that Christ has set you free. Freedom from the law to live a life in the will of God. Now, that's one kind of slavery, but we're talking about another kind of slavery. And what we're approaching here is this philosophical idea of two kinds of freedoms, right? Everybody over here say positive. positive. Everybody over here say negative. negative. All right. And rightly, positive had a bit more enthusiasm. That's good. We've got positive freedom and negative freedom. You with me so far? Good, because that wasn't a very complicated part. Positive freedom is what the philosophers and ancient writers, both of scriptures, but in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, were thinking of when they used the word freedom. This is what a positive freedom is. It is the freedom to pursue some good aim. It is freedom for the sake of meaning, for the sake of purpose, specifically for the sake of others. That's the freedom that the philosophers and the writers of Scripture are trying to talk about. When Paul said it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, he doesn't mean it's for the freedom to go and watch a Netflix binge for the next 10 hours of your life. He's saying it is for the freedom to do something with your life that is of meaning and purpose and value to others and specifically to God. That's a positive freedom, freedom designed for good. But when we think of freedom in the West, that is not necessarily how we think of it. We primarily think of it in what philosophers call negative freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from all external constraints. That means that I get to set up the parameters of what my life looks like. And anyone that pushes in on those parameters is, in the language of today, oppressing me. And needs to be removed, cancelled if you prefer, or taken away, toxic, whatever language you want to use in today's parlance, and needs to be oppressed and moved moved out. It doesn't need to be oppressed, but needs to be moved out. So the idea is we get to set up this idea, this is my life. If anyone pushes in on the values I've set up for myself, they are actually not just inhibiting my values or my lifestyle or my habits, but me, my identity, my sense of self, because I've built it all around this narrative. And so what happens then is we cannot have any external constraint. We can't have any external person, idea, or God telling us how to live our life. And this runs into all sorts of problems. You can see pretty quickly that this idea of negative freedom doesn't really work in reality. But I want to spell it out a little bit so that we understand. Because what we think about is in negative freedom, the chief moral good is the freedom to live however we wish. Sounds okay. okay. But the only moral evil really is stopping somebody living how they wish. That could include murder. You know, it can be that drastic. But it also can be just saying, I don't think that's a good idea. It's that diverse. Let me, let me give an example. We might, for example, find ourselves to be a foodie. Anyone in here call themselves a foodie? Yeah, great. Great. Good for you guys. It's, is that a bad thing? No. No. I love the nerves in the room. I'll wait to see if somebody else answers first. No, 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 it's not. There's nothing wrong with being a foodie. You're passionate about food. Foodies tend to be not only passionate about the type of food, they love the scent, they love the plating, they love the experience. There is something about that. And if you're a foodie, generally speaking, you want to be able to eat what you want when you want it. That might be very different from the sort of like 14-year-old who's going, I just want Mac every meal. It's a very different kind of foodie. But it is that same idea of I would like to eat whatever I want whenever I want it. In fact, all of us are kind of foodies in that idea. We would like to eat what we want whenever we want it. Now, let's say you're an exercise junkie as well. Let's say you're somebody who is passionate about making their body in shape. You love that feeling, that stretch when you've been to the gym and there's a pain in your muscles, but it's the good pain, you know what I mean? Or you get you get that burning in your lungs or in your hammies after you've been running, but you're like, it's the good kind, is the earned kind. And you're passionate about that. That's great. It can become something that, you know, is obviously an idol if you pursue it too far. Both being a foodie and being an exercise junkie can become something that, you know, is, is all-consuming. But let's assume you're wise enough to set some parameters around that. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not a psychopath. I'm a foodie and I'm an exercise junkie. Great. I'm just passionate about those two things. Sounds fine. Until you try and do both of them simultaneously. This is where negative freedom really starts to take root. Let's say, now I'm using this example because these are two things I am passionate about. Being fit and eating food that I like to eat when I want to eat it. I will let you guess which negative freedom (laughs) won and you can keep the answer to yourself. These loves... Do not work together once your metabolism stops working. When I tried to do that, what I call my 20s, working as hard as I can for them both to fight together at the same time, as hard as I wanted. Let's go. Let's get up and eat six donuts for breakfast because I can and then go for a 10K run and it's fine. And you just get back up the next day and do it again. At some point, the metabolism will break down and one of those freedoms will lose. Now, here's the thing. Here's why negative freedom doesn't work. Because the freedom that wins is not the one we want the most. It is the habit that is owning us the most. It is not about your desire that you are controlling. It is about the desire that is controlling you. That's why you can guess which one won with me. Because there is one desire that is easier to form a habit in. If it's between eating whatever food you want and exercising as much as you want, you can tell which one of those is easier to form, right? Yes, you're you're all familiar with this habit. And hopefully the fit people are polite enough not to talk about it. The two competing desires don't work. If you want to be an exercise junkie, you will need to give up your freedoms around eating. If you want to just go and eat whatever you want, that is fine. But you are going to have to give up the vision of being an exercise junkie. Those two things will not go hand in hand. Which is one reason why even those with brilliant metabolisms can sometimes have terrible heart disease and look as fit as a fiddle. You know what I mean? There has got to become a place where our freedoms clash. That's the world we live in right now. Somebody offers one vision of freedom, somebody offers a second, they clash with each other, anger ensues, capital gets rioted, the rest of it. These loves are not necessarily, yes, admittedly, not every freedom causes the capital riots, but you get the picture. These loves are not necessarily in and of themselves bad, but they are disoriented, they are disordered, we find that they come above affection for God in our hearts. That's the problem. And we find as well when we're courageous enough to look outside of ourselves and realise we don't live in an individualistic word, that our actions affect other people. We can't just do something and assume it's going to work out because our actions online, church, affect other people. So let's take, for example, a man who looks at pornography occasionally. A man who is looking at pornography occasionally is shaping the habits and patterns of their mind to look at it more regularly, because that's what the mind does. It forms patterns of behavior, particularly when you're getting dopamine hits, which serves as reward to your brain. So it trains your brain to then look at it more regularly. And when it trains your brain to look at it more regularly, it trains your brain to expect that from your sexual partner. And that then begins to shape them in terms of the way they see their body image, in terms of the way they think they should be participating as a sexual partner in marriage. This is, this is the sort of thing that happens because of pornography. And if you start to track data, you see that the higher the viewing of pornography is in a nation, the higher the increase of sexual violence, the higher the increase of some other horrific things that we don't need to go into at this moment. The point is this. We don't live in an individualistic world. Our actions affect others. Our thoughts affect our actions, our actions affect our habits, our habits affect our world. So we have to be very conscious of choosing restrictions in order to have true freedom. You with me? That's where negative freedom doesn't work. Positive freedom says, I will choose to be restricted to love another. This is where we come back to the element of sacrifice. There is a cost. I find the longer I am married, the more I am enraptured with my wife. And the more I long to serve her, and I don't do it to get points, and I don't do it because she's going to serve me in a different way. I just do it because I love her. And in fact, I begin to do it instinctively because it's become a habit. I just do it. I form a habit. This afternoon I was going, Ah, oh, yeah, I'd like to walk down to church and just sort of be in my own head. She, uh, I didn't say the second part. I just wanted to walk down to church. She's like, oh, cool, can you take Charlie with you? I really went, in my mind, I was like, oh, actually, I just wanted to walk down by myself and sort of be with the Lord and pray and enjoy the sunshine. But what I said was, yeah, no worries. And I, I meant it because that's how you begin to build into the rhythm of marriage. You're like, "Ah, oh, that's going to bless you? Absolutely. That's part of my life. That is the negative freedom. uh, Sorry, a positive freedom mindset. I'm embracing a restriction on a freedom I'm hoping for because it's blessing and sacrificing for the other. That's the vision. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is what you want. Every time you've ever spoken about or dreamed of a relationship, this is what you've wanted. You've wanted something with somebody who is genuinely a partner with you. Where the two of you are traveling together in the same direction. Jeremy talked about last week how it's Christians are encouraged to date Christians in Scripture. The reason is because you're aligned and going towards the same thing. It's the same reason if you went to a psychologist as a Muslim dating a Hindu and said, do you think this is going to work out? They'd say, probably not. Muslim, you should probably date a Muslim because that's the direction you're going. Hindu, you should probably date a Hindu. It's not about a racism thing. It's about the direction you're aiming at. And so if somebody comes to a psychologist with their partner and says, hey, should we date each other? We're not really aiming at anything. They'll go, I guess so. But if you came in and explained this and said, hey, we're not really aiming at anything, but we have built our life around this accidental framework of negative freedom where I am my own boss and no one should impinge on me and she is her own boss and no one should impinge on her and we just want to live a healthy married life together. How's that going to go? The psychologist might say, "Ah, oh, I think I might need to cancel some afternoon appointments and extend this one. But can you see the difference between the vision we want and the vision we actually end up pursuing? The vision we want is one in which we sacrifice for other people in such a dramatic way and such a habit-forming way that it becomes this release from slavery and we don't even know it. That is called living for the kingdom of God. It's called walking in step by the Spirit. It's what the Apostle Paul said is the thing that breaks you from freedom to sin. But the habits we form by accident are the ones where we create this empire of the self and we become enslaved to it. And when we are enslaved to something that is not God, we are enslaved to sin. And let me tell you, friends, I say this with all the love in the world. Most of us in this room are enslaved to sin in one way or another. And it's mostly because of this idea of negative freedom. We all want to be the boss of our own lives. Now, I don't mean don't be responsible. Be responsible, people. I mean, at some point, you will have to ask the question, who directs my path? Is it God or is it me? And as we've talked about with worship And other elements, if we think it's us, then we have to be brutally aware of everything else around us. But let me tell you why it shouldn't be you. Because if you allow anything else apart from God to be the Lord of your life, it will eat you alive. It will cause you to put all your affection on something that cannot bear its weight. If all your affection is on participating in a certain practice, let's say, um, Oh, what's the gym group that everyone jokes is a cult? Um, uh, CrossFit was what I was looking at, but yes, F forty five is fair. Also, um, CrossFit is what I was thinking about. Like, let's—if you put all your affection and joy on CrossFit, let's say you become the most, the best at CrossFit the world has ever known. Yet you're not happy. Then what? And if you put all your affection on pursuing a particular goal in your workplace, and you're like, "This, I'm going to be the very." best at this. I am going to work so hard. No one's ever going to be able to put the effort in. I am. But it doesn't bring you satisfaction. Now what? Or what if you are a justice warrior and you say, I am going to pursue these causes and I will make these causes happen and I'll participate in that and it's going to change the world. And you do that and you still feel the sense of deep dissatisfaction. Then what? Or worse, you find somebody else to be with. You want them to be your spouse, your husband, your wife, to live with them forever. And in them and on them, you pour all your hopes, all your dreams. And in fact, you say, you are my reason. You are the reason I get up in the morning. I love you that much. Now, that seems beautiful, but that is a burden of salvation no one is built for. Only Jesus was built for that. And that is the reason that this is enslaving us. Negative freedoms do that to us. They're not liberating. They lead to your sin. They lead to your death. But positive freedom breaks the chains of slavery on behalf of other people. And Jesus, in his act of loving sacrifice, came to embody positive freedom for us. The freedom of Jesus enabled him to take up the cross on our behalf and free us from slavery to sin. Have you ever considered this? Nobody has ever had more freedoms than Jesus. He was seated at the right hand of God the Father. He Is God. He has limitless freedom, and He chose to limit Himself beyond our imagination. For you, for the sake of love. That's the depth of God's love for you. You think If you can think of any freedom and say, I wouldn't give that up, imagine the freedoms that God has laid up for you. In fact, so often Paul will say things like, if you are feeling flat, if you are struggling, consider God through Christ who pursued glory by sacrificing himself for others. Consider Jesus and do not grow weary because of what he has done on your behalf. And he does that. Not so that you get down on yourself and go, I could never do that. But so that you can be lifted up and say, I don't have to do that. God has done it on my behalf. He's freed me. I'm not a slave anymore. It's good news. It's good news. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't want to suffer like he suffered. He didn't want to die on the cross. It's written in the Bible. Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours. And friends, that's exactly how we should pray. If it's possible, God, could you take me out of this circumstance, this situation? but not my will but yours because it's possible that in what I feel is suffering, you are forging a new identity in me. You are building in me something that I desperately need. You are changing me into the kind of person that is going to be the person worthy of being married to somebody down the road. You are changing me into the kind of person that is going to be able to forge a career that transforms the world through the job that I'm doing. You are forging me into the kind of person that can pursue justice initiatives and transform the world through this because these are not bad things in and of themselves it's just when we put all our hopes and dreams on them that we crush them and crush ourselves this is what happens when we do that when we try and put all our hopes and dreams on things we destroy ourselves because they cannot work they end up enslaving us and when we put all our hopes and dreams on people we end up destroying them they are not our savior Jesus lived out true freedom, not by pursuing temporary satisfaction, but by sacrificing his own life and embracing the suffering of the cross to free us from slavery. Now, why did he do all this? Salvation. That brings me to my final point. Salvation. Our slavery to sin and our struggle to accept sacrifice meant that God had to enter the world personally. Enter Jesus, who I like to call God's plan A. God always had intended Jesus to come. Jesus entered our world because God knew that handing us the keys was both absolutely necessary for the freedom of our love and absolutely impossible to succeed. Now, this sounds insane, but when you're a parent, you get it. Sometimes you give your kids tasks you know they're not going to be able to do because they learn and they grow and they get better. Great example, catch this ball the first time. They're not going to catch it. If they do, you should like get them in Cricket Academy straight away. But chances are they're not going to catch it. It's, they're probably going to go like that, not even be able to bring their hands together, and it's going to hit them in the chest. Hopefully it's only the chest. But what do they do next time? They work out what's happening. Oh, it's going to come this way. I bring my hands together. Okay. I've sort of bunted it away. That's a step. This is what God has done. He's given us a task that he knew would never work, that is, enable us to have control of our own lives. Why? Because he doesn't want slaves at all. He's looking for his children. You're his sons. You're his daughters. That's the way God sees you. He loves you beyond all imagination. And so, for you to know your identity as daughters and sons, he gave you the keys to your own freedom and said, you can live your life however you wish. And then he sent Jesus to say alright son you've got this could you make a way for them because we never did that ourselves very well did we we ended up getting trapped in our own slavery each and every one of us has something that if we can think about hard enough is enslaving us or is a habit that we need to break before it begins to enslave us if you can't think of one ask your closest friend and they will be able to tell you but Jesus came so that we did not have to do that ourselves We need salvation because when we choose the steps for our own path without involving God, we unwillingly choose slavery. Sin is not only a word for grieving God's heart and his character, it's a word for the destructive tendencies we pull down on ourselves, the obvious ones, the subtle ones. We need salvation because of our continual choice to join the work of sin and slavery, not the redemptive work of God throughout the world. If you make an object or an idea your salvation, it leads you to addiction. If you make a person, it leads to destruction. But if you allow Jesus to be your saviour, it leads to life. It leads to freedom. And not only are you saved from slavery, but you're invited into a life that serves others. Not just because that's what Jesus wants, but because he fills you with himself, with his Holy Spirit. His power and authority is with you. That's what God does for you. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, EncounterAdelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review, or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.